Hey, metal fans, this is Michael Wilson from Queensryche, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Focus on Hey, Metalhead, Scott here. And Richie. And we are uh, in our second-to-last show of uh, 2019, and also the two shows to go, this one and the next, before we go on our annual winter break. But uh, this week, got a pretty cool thing, as Richie had reached out again to our buddy Brian Heaton, and they decided that they were going to talk all about Queensryche's Q2K. Yeah, it was a lot of... You look at Queensryche's discography... American Soldier was 10 years. Q2K is 20. Uh-huh. I think Promised Land is 25. 94, I think. Yeah. Um, so, of course, Brian gave us the great interview with Jason. Yeah. Um, Brian set me up with Jason originally when I had him on for... Uh, to, when he, to talk about the last right. four or five records right. he'd yeah. done before Todd LaTorre joined. Jason was great. And I, I got, I've kept in touch with Brian pretty regularly since then and through either messaging or, or phone calls. Right, yeah. Um, so when Brian offered us Jason, I took it and it was great. And Brian just happened to mention the Q2K because he knew I was a big fan of that record. Yeah. Um, originally, I had reached out to um, Kelly Kelly Gray. Yeah. And I got nowhere. <laughs> I didn't even get a reply. Yeah. Um, I figured... Kelly might be interesting to talk to because he was the new guy. He produced the record. Right, yeah. Um, but it didn't work out. So Brian just happened to mention, uh, why don't we do it? Yeah. And I said, sure. So we spent an hour on the phone. And if anyone doesn't know Brian, he was the guy who had anybodylistening.net. Right. Which is a very popular Queensryche website, forum, message board, the whole lot. Right. He has right. been into Queensryche for a long, long time, knows way more about the band than I do. Um. I'm a fan. He's really a fan. He sure. actually knew some of the guys in the band pretty well yeah. over the years. And um, so I decided to, to you know, just chat Great. as two mates do yeah. for about an hour about Q2K. Yeah. And we've got pretty deep into it. He, his knowledge on it now, especially when it comes to the, who wrote the songs and the, the, the environment around that. Right. He knows a lot more about that than I do. Right. I'm just a big fan of the album. Yeah, but um, yeah, it was a it was a great chat. Yeah, it was it was interesting as you guys were going along that there were a lot of songs that you guys just kind of independently agreed on. I noticed that as yeah, I was it going was through, weird. it was it was, was kind of I thought there was going to be this this big disparity, but there was only I don't know maybe three out of all of them that you guys like maybe differed a lot on. Other than that, it was yeah, pretty, it was pretty close. When that record came out, I loved it immediately. I think I I liked it because it sounded a lot different to hearing the Now Frontier, which I had a serious problem with. Uh-huh. I just didn't like the mix on that at all. Um, a lot of the fans still didn't like it. I think a lot a lot of the old school Queensrÿch fans they think after Promised Land the band really turned to shit. Yeah, and um, they have a, they have a point. I I get something out of every album. Yeah, that was for me that that whole kind of stretch of albums was a little bit sketchy and and uh, definitely wasn't you know the Queensryche that I was used to with you know, Rage for Order and The Warning and, you know, all of that. So it, I just kind of, 
I just kind of went other places at that point, you know? Mm. Yes, but I think it just became Jeff's band. Yeah. When Chris DeGarmo left, it became right. Jeff's band. And yeah. me and Brian get into that a little bit. Yeah. Um, some of it's speculation, you know, because Chris hasn't done that many interviews since then. No. Nope. I'd love to have him on. Just out flying, <laughs> out flying planes. He's out flying planes, <laughs> staying well away from that shit. Yeah. And uh, I don't blame him. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, of course, we have the the Jeff Tate gig coming up early next year. That, yes. That'll be, I'm looking yeah. forward to that now. Yeah. That'll be good. Yeah. We'll see how he does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a long set. It's a <laughs> yeah, long it set. Yeah. See how his voice holds up because he, he he's constantly touring. Yeah, either that or showing people around drinking wine. You've seen that? No, I. He's haven't. doing tours. Really? He's offering tours where you can go on on a trip with him around <laughs> Italy. I think it was Italy was one of them. I think he's doing another one now where he, he's showing you all his favorite places on the West Coast. Uh huh. Up around uh, Washington State yeah. and all that. So you can go, you can go uh, hang I'll out pass. with Jeff for a week. I'll pass. And drink wine. No, no, definitely I'll pass. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you know, like Richie was saying, it's pretty much a solid hour of uh, great conversation with uh, with him and Brian talking all about Q2K and some other little things in there too. But uh, what do you say we roll it? Yeah, sure. Awesome. Um, I got into Queensryche, um 1987, 88. It, it was just prior to Operation Mindcrime coming out. I had a buddy of mine who gave me Rage for Order on cassette. And uh, it re- immediately I, I was like, well, who are these guys? Because um, I had known bands from Seattle. Fifth Angel was a band that I was a really big fan of. And these guys just took what they were doing to a whole different level. Um, and then I found out later that, that Queen Drex actually came before them. So anyway, uh, yeah, I, I've been a fan for, uh, yeah, since like 88, 89, uh, 87, 88, something like that. And um yeah, I really enjoyed, you know, the, their cerebral kind of approach to what they did and, and that each album kind of morphed from one to another. They, they followed like this songwriting arc and uh, they were just really engaging. And uh, I became a hardcore pretty much right from the start. And um, I, I, I remained a huge fan through, I would say, through the Q2K um, era, which we'll talk about later. What about mm. you? I got into him about 87 as well. Um, at that time, a lot of my friends had different albums than I did. They were into metal a little bit longer than I was, so they were more in-depth with what was going on. And what I, what used to happen was I'd give them cassette tapes to record albums. And a lot of the albums were about 35 to 40 minutes, and you give them a 90-minute cassette, and they'd put one or two songs at the end of it to fill up the tape. Um, I remember one of the bands that they put on that I'm a huge fan of uh, now is uh, Y&T. I'd never, I'd never heard of them, and they put on a couple of songs from Contagious, and that's how I got into Y&T. And one of the tapes they put on, a couple of the songs from Rage for Order, and I liked them, and then I listened to the album, and I thought I didn't like the album at all. Uh, it's, it, it sounded so different to Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, and Rat, <laughs> and Dokken, and I've. It was to me. It's it's very similar to me with, with, with Megadeth's Peace Cells. I thought that was crap when I heard it first. Now I think it's a it's a masterpiece. But it. I just didn't get it. It just took repeated listening, and I stuck a Rage for Order and. I, it's my favorite Queensryche album now, and I bought Mind Crime the day it came out. I remember 
uh, going at lunchtime from school, picking it up, bringing it back into class, sitting at the back of the class, uh, trying to read the storyline while the teacher was bladdering on at the front, <laughs> seeing if I could seeing if I could follow it. Um, bought Empire, loved Empire, saw the first date of the, War, the Empire World Tour, and then after that, then I love Promised Land, and I, I've just been a massive fan fan of the band, and even now I still, you know, even with the la- the, the last couple of uh, Tate records, I they weren't great. A lot of people thought they were crap. I, there was still moments on it that I really liked, um, but the album that I did question the band was definitely here in the now frontier. Um, I hated the sound on it. Uh, the Kelly Gray mixed that, or was it Toby Wright? I'm trying to remember. He, uh, it was Toby Wright. Toby, Toby Wright mixed mixed that record, and, and you know my, my story kind of is the same same as yours. I, I I didn't buy my Crime the day it came out. I probably got it about a week or so later. Um, I was twelve in nineteen eighty eight, so it, it was. It was one of those things where I had to rely on friends. I mean, I remember buying Empire and Promised Land first day. Um, but similar though, you know, I was into, you know, I, I was into this band called Fifth Angel from Seattle, and they had this like Dokken meets power metal kind of sound to them. Hi, this is Ken Mary, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. So focus, people, focus. But I was more into at the time, like Bon Jovi, White Snake, and and when I discovered Queensrÿche, it, 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 this more heady approach to things. Um, it really, it really just, I grabbed onto it. And, uh, same as you, like I, I followed that trajectory with mind crime. I remember people coming up to me who are big Def Leppard fans, making fun of me for listening to Queens Reich and making fun of their name. And then when eyes of a stranger debuted on MTV, those same guys, those same guys came up to me like, dude, you were so right about Queens. <laughs> and I'm like, well, so I, I, I first saw them, um, at Jones beach in 95 on the promised land tour. I, I missed the empire tour, unfortunately. Um, which is a big shame. Uh, that was at Nassau Coliseum in, on Long Island. That would have been really cool to see. But I, I made Promised Land, and I saw here in the now Frontier twice, um, Jones Beach again, and then the uh, PNC Bank Art Center in New Jersey. But the um, here in the now Frontier was a weird record. I, I remember when it, it came out, and I got a, an early release of that record. I forget what it was, but it sounded just strange. I didn't even know how to process it because it sounded like a completely different band at first. And it took a while. Um, and, and to be honest with you, it, even to this day, it's taken me 22 years later. I'm finally appreciating some of those songs a hell of a lot more um, than I did back then. Uh, songs like Hero and and even some people fly, which a lot of people liked uh, in the beginning. I did, and and I have a better appreciation for it now. But that era of Queensrÿche was it, it was really rough. You know, you had um, their EMI folded right as the record was released. Sign of the Times was their first single, and it's really well at radio, um, probably because of the push from EMI. And uh, You was the second single, and again, that one started off strong. And then when EMI folded, that was it. Um, the uh, the radio play went downhill. There was nothing there. The band had to self-finance that whole tour. Um, I remember them playing the sheds and, you know, in Promised Land, Jones Beach was completely sold out. And you saw in Here Now Frontier, it was half full. Um, and I, it's strange because I think they had a more marketable record with Here in the Now Frontier over Promised Land. It, it was more written for 
the music of the time. And uh, it just fell apart. That's one of the reasons I questioned the band. It, because it sounded like everybody else. Before then, Queensryche had this reputation as being you know, groundbreaking when it came to songs, when it came to musicianship, when it came to, the produ- especially the production. Um, when you put on Empire and, and you know, Mind Crime and, and Promised Land, they still sound amazing today. You can hear everything on it. And when, I, when I put on Here in the Now Frontier, it just had this muddied sound on it. it had that I grungy sound. it was very sound. dry. Yeah. it was very dry, yeah. And it just sounded like, like I'm all for a band growing, you know, organically, but it, this one just felt forced. And I don't know who in the band pushed them into getting the album to sound like that. Well, I, you know, I, my guess is um, it was probably DeGarmo. And, and, and the reason why I say that is a little bit of the backstory, you know, Promised Land was a lot of tension for the, when that when that record was created. Um, the band was on the verge of breaking apart before that record um, was even released. Uh, there was a lot of dysfunction in that, and Chris kind of pulled them all together in order to make that record, which I know it, some people, the more a lot of the, the more metal guys I've noticed really don't like that record. Um, but to me, that record is quintessential Queensryche. Um, it, it, it was the more art rock portion of Queensryche. And, but that was a record that was really hard to make. And DeGarmo was the one that kind of, you know, got Jeff, you know, who was going through a divorce, got him, you know, out of his depression to help do that record. Um, you know, Wilton was having his issues and, and, and he got Wilton back on, back on the page with that. If you notice, Wilton doesn't even really have too many writing credits at all on promised land. Um, so DeGarmo really kind of spearheaded that. And as they went into here in the now frontier, um, you know, I don't think that Chris wanted to, and this is just me guessing. Um, I don't think he really wanted to belabor the pre-production on the record. You know, he had a bunch of songs and Hey, let's just do this spontaneously and try and capture a, a live feel. And, um, it's interesting because I had I just finished reading uh, Greg Prado's latest book on Soundgarden, and it was curious because down on the upside, um, which was Soundgarden's last record before they broke up in '96 '97, um, it has a lot of things in common with Here in the Now Frontier and the song structures and some of the production style. And Chris Cornell and Chris DeGarmo knew one another; they were friends. So I wonder how much that. The, the stylistic choice that Cornell made with Soundgarden on that last Down on the Upside record really impacted what Chris tried to do with Here in the Now Frontier. I, I'd love to ask Chris that at some point and see what it was, because I think your concern about the sound of that record and the way it was, I, I mean, that came from Chris, but I wonder where Chris was influenced, and I think it was Soundgarden. Mm. What, when do you think the band taught that Chris was going to leave, or did you think it came out of, it was a bolt out of the blue? I don't think it was out of the blue. Um, I, well, actually, let me, let me take that back. Yes, I do think it was out of the blue. Um, the band relied on Chris for a lot, if not everything. He was president of their business operations. He, you know, he was their main songwriter, particularly over the last couple records with him. Um, you know, and I think that they just assumed, they being the band, that 
okay, here in the now frontier ended, we need we need a new label because EMI is gone. We we need all this stuff, and I think they just assumed Chris would do it um, because he had for years. And you know, Chris was going through things himself. You know, I I think from from the rumors that were going around, and, and from people I know that were close to close to some of the band members at the time. You know, Chris was really concerned about not being there for his kids, for his relationship with his wife, you know, I, and then all the stress of, hey, i got to write all the songs. You're telling me i got to get the label now, too, and i got to do all this? I just think he got fed up with it, and he, and he didn't want to live um, that kind of lifestyle. Um, and again, that's a guess. I mean, he went out on the road with Jerry Cantrell after that. So, obviously... Um, life changes weren't immediate for Chris, but they eventually they were. And, and I just think that they kind of, they being Queensryche, I, I think that they, they were surprised. And once Chris announced it to the band, um, it was funny because he had to stick with them through the end of 1997. They wrapped that tour for him and now frontier in August. And Chris had told them after that, maybe like a couple months after that, Hey, I'm not going to, continue with those guys with you guys and then in december they had to go to south america and play their final shows knowing chris wasn't going to be in the band after that wow <laughs> that must have been pretty damn awkward yeah i've the stories of that with other musicians as well though that they've given in their notice but i think it's it's uh it all depends on the relationship you have with the guys like if you have a good relationship and especially especially when you when you think of bands now like i'll give you an example like damon johnson with Black Star Riders, uh, I've I've spoken to Damon and Ricky, and they're still great friends. But Damon played shows after he said he was leaving. Um, and then when Dickinson left Maiden the first time, that was a little bit different because there was a little bit of acrimony there between the rest of them. And if you read the Maiden book, I think it's Nico McBrain felt that there was some shows that Dickinson was only mailing it in, so. It can be harmonious, and at other times it's like, no, just leave now. We don't want you for the rest of the shows. But you're contractually obligated, so you just have to make the best of it. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's it's a testament, I think, to Chris's character that, you know, a couple months, uh, you know, there were, he said that he was leaving the band, and then he's like, hey, I'll still fulfill those shows in South America. I mean, that, that's, I mean, he's still friends with Michael Wilton, like close friends with Michael Wilton. I don't think they're best buds, but they still play golf together once in a while. And, you know, Chris has said before, uh, you know, even as, you know, recently as like about six, five, six years ago, like he's still friends with everybody. You know, I know him and Scott Rockenfield celebrated their birthdays together because they're close in time a few years ago. You know, things like that. I think they are all still are friends. And so I think at the time, back in 1997, it might have been a little strange because who knew what the band was going to do after Chris actually departed. But I, I think it speaks to the fact that they've known one another now for 35, 35 years or so that, you know, Chris was going to fulfill those commitments and, and, and then move on. Hmm. Um, what, what was interesting is what came later. So what, what way did the cards fall here? You had Q Prime dumping them. You had the label leaving them. And then you had Chris leave. So do you know which order that all happened? If I remember right, the, the first step was the label. Um, the label dumped them. Uh, well, the label didn't necessarily dump them. The label went bankrupt. Hmm. And 
And so as soon as the label went bankrupt, I think there was like a two-month gap or a three-month gap before the tour started. I think it was three months. It was a three-month gap before the tour started. Somewhere in there is where Q Prime dumped them. Um, and I don't know the reasons for that. Um, I mean, I, I, we say that they dumped them. Maybe it was that Queensryche couldn't afford Q Prime anymore. Q Prime, it's not cheap to have Q Prime as management. Um, it wasn't then, and it probably isn't now. Um, so I don't know what the story is behind them and Q Prime splitting. Um, my guess is that they dumped them, but I don't know. So it was label, management, and then DeGarmo leaving. Hmm. And do you reckon those two pushed DeGarmo to leave a little bit earlier than he wanted to? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I don't, I mean, that's a lot of work on the business side for one dude. And, and you know, and music was changing. Album sales weren't anywhere near where they used to be in 97. And then a couple of years later, obviously, when, when technology started to change, it really shifted everything. But Queensryche was in a downward, you know, a downward slide. And Chris wasn't dumb. He knew, you know. And I, I just, I, everything piling on like that, I think it would give any person pause and reflection on what they're doing and do they really want to continue down that path with the same people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I mean, it, it, I can't speak for Chris, obviously, and only he knows what's going through his head. But, you know, I, I think it was just, hey, I got a lot going on here and I got a lot going on personally. And do I want to continue this way? And uh, I think for him, the answer obviously was no. You have to wonder why he would take all that on, number one. And number two, why the rest of the band guys had let him do that? Because you look at the songwriting credits, he probably does 80 or 90% of the songs. And now you're telling me that he did a lot of the, the business side of it as well. Why You have to wonder why the other guys let him do that. Because for a, that is a lot to take on. And there, you can't really be surprised when the guy walks away after all of that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, Chris is the only one who can fully answer it. But, I mean, speculation-wise, I mean, Chris wasn't always the main songwriter of Queensryche. I mean, Wilton was hand-in-hand, especially during Queensryche's more metal years, the EP through Operation Mindcrime. Wilton was neck-and-neck neck with Chris in terms of songwriting credits. It was only with Empire and then obviously significantly with Promised Land where, where Chris really took over that realm of things. And as for the reasons why, I, I mean, Queensryche was morphing from a metal band to more of a hard rock band. And Jeff Tate's been on record a million times as saying he was never really a metal dude. And he's not. And, and I think that when Wilton, when Wilton came in with um, riffs, you know, it would be DeGarmo who would sit there and say, okay, well, is this something that, that, you know, is it interesting enough that it can get Jeff to really be invested in it so that we can write something cool around it? And as the band got into the hard rock arena, I think Chris just said, okay, well, listen, you know, I can, I can write these songs that really relate well with Jeff. You know, Michael, if you have ideas, fine, but bring complete ideas to the table, bring complete songs. And if we think that they're good enough as a band, we'll use them. And th this is my guess, you know, I'm speculating, but it, that seems to be the logical thing of why they let Chris really 
start to be the main songwriter in the band during the 90s was because, well, you know, he related better to Jeff's non-metal interests. You know, Chris Chris loves pop music. You know, he, he, he loves bands like Muse, you know, even currently. You know, he, w- he was into metal, but he wasn't a m- complete metal guy. He was the Floyd guy in the band, not Will, you know. So mm-hmm. it makes kind of sense. And in business-wise, I mean, I don't know. I can't really answer that question, but I mean, all bands that kind of come up and have their businesses, their business structured, somebody in the band is the president of the business's corporation. Um, it just so happened that it was Chris. Maybe because Chris has a really good head on his shoulders. I don't know. Um, you'd have to ask them. I, I think that's probably why, but I, I don't know for sure. Do you think the band were done after Chris left? Um, done. You mean done did, in terms did break ahead. Did break up? I... <sighs> It's hard. Remembering back at that time, 20 years ago, or 22 years ago, whatever it was, I didn't think that they were done. But then when I found out stuff like how Jeff tried out for Journey, you know, he auditioned with Journey, I think they did think that they were done um, initially. I really do. And then I think when when the audition with Journey didn't result in Jeff getting that job, uh, I think that they looked at it again. And in early 1998, they looked at it and said, "Hey, we, let's uh, let's see if we can do this together t- together again. We we built this business up. We did all this. We have to replace a guy, an important guy, but we have to replace a guy." And I think that's when Jeff kind of Jeff kind of assumed a lot of that leadership role of the band and how we got into the Q2K years. Tell tell me what you know about the journey audition. Um, was that something that? They sought him or he sought it? I don't know. Uh, I found out about that journey audition, oh God, I don't know, probably about six or seven, eight months after it happened. Maybe maybe a little later than that. Um, all I know is I don't know who, who contacted who, but obviously when Steve Perry wasn't going to tour for um, Trial by Fire, the journey was looking for a singer. And ultimately, I'm going to assume that they did auditions. Um, and I, I maybe Jeff's heard about that through the industry and put his name in the hat and they, they, they brought him down, you know. Um, that's my guess. I, I do know that during the auditions, just from interviews, I think, that I've, I've seen from Ross Valerie, that, you know, Jeff worked with them on a few songs that ended up being on Journey's Red, uh, I think it was called Red 13 EP, Walking Away from the Edge, is, is one of those songs, but they were completely rewritten with Steve Augury. So Tate doesn't get any songwriting credit on it, but I know he worked them over with him. And, uh, you know, from what I remember with Jeff addressing it, he, he basically just said, yeah, I did it. And, and, you know, he goes, but I really just couldn't see myself singing, um, love and touch and squeeze in every night. And, uh, I don't know how much of that is true. I, I don't know what the difference is between journey saying, Hey, this guy isn't the right guy for the job. Who Jeff just, uh, not wanting the job ultimately after checking it out. I don't know where the truth lies there. All I know is that Ross Valerie was really complimentary towards Jeff. And he just said that, you know, he was, he was great, great singer, just not the right type of singer for Jeremy. And I agree with that. Mm. Um, now we all know Kelly Gray got the job as a guitar okay. player. Um, yep. Do you know who else they tried out or did they try anybody else out? I don't know for certain. Um, my my feeling is just based on 
all the speculation over the years and everything else and all the interviews, I don't think that they auditioned anybody. When it happened, when, well, when Chris left and after the journey stuff, so like 1998, I remember Queensryche was hinting towards the, the identity of the new guitar player. And there was a lot of rumors, like Frank Aresti had left Fate's Warning a couple of years prior. A lot of people thought he would be perfect, um, myself included. I, I remember talking about that. I thought Frank would be, he can sing and he can play great guitar. I thought he would be a perfect fit. Um, you know, and a lot of people said, no, they're going to stay local. And uh, a couple names came up. I remember Kendall Bechtel from Fifth Angel. He'd been out looking for a, a steady gig for a few years and, you know, he was, I, I know a couple of people, not just me, we're, we're, we're talking about him. But they didn't really reveal Kelly's identity um, until I think right before they did their little, um, they had a fan club, annual fan club kind of meet and greet thing in 98. And I think right before that's when they announced it was Kelly Gray. Um, and at the time, to be honest with you, I didn't even know who the hell the guy was. Hmm. Now, is that all, they'd already done the record with him? So did people knew that he produced it? They just didn't know that he was in the band? Is that what you're saying? No, not at all. Q2K was, was written in late 1998, early 1999. Um, no, what happened was Kelly got into the band first, and we knew that eventually that Kelly was the new guy. I remember they revealed they revealed this picture probably, I don't know, I'm guessing here, but I think it was like April-ish, maybe 1998. So people knew, and then they got the background on Kelly. Like, you know, Kelly had played in Myth, which was Jeff's band before Queensryche, and you know, the, the interesting thing about Kelly was, was that back in those days, he was really, meaning like the early 80s and late 70s, he was really influenced by Richie Blackmore. And so people were like, hey, you know, this guy's got chops, he can play. And, you know, over the years, you know, Kelly went more into production and didn't play as much guitar. And his influences changed. And But nobody knew that. So while we were waiting for Q2K to be revealed and the songs to be revealed, a lot of people were just like, hey, this dude, you know, he used to be a Blackmore kind of guy. I mean, this this will probably work. He's local, but he's with Jeff. You know, this could work. And uh, ultimately, when Q2K's songs finally, a couple of the songs finally came out, people were kind of scratching their heads a little bit. Hmm. Now... He was in a band with Jeff, with Jeff, but how well did the other guys know him? Um, you know, Seattle's a weird town. Like, it, it, it's become a big, bigger city, but everybody in the music scene knows everybody. And Kelly was actually on the short list of people to produce the record after here on the Now Frontier. In fact, um, Kelly even said that I didn't know Chris was even leaving. I was actually doing some wiring work in his home studio, Chris's home studio. And at the time, Kelly just thought it was going to be for the next Queen Drive record. Uh, he didn't have any idea that Chris was going to leave. So, I mean, Kelly knew the guys. Um, I think he knew, obviously, he knew Jeff really well. Um, obviously, he knew Chris. And he said they knew Mike a little less well than, than some of the others. But they all knew one another, if not, not closely by name. And pretty much everybody in that scene knows one another here and there. Hmm. Do you think they were looking personality-wise for someone like Chris? Or were they just looking for a guy that would fit into the band like as a, as a player? You know, it, it depends on who you ask. I mean, and it depends on what you believe about the, the internal politics of Queensryche, um, at least back then. My personal opinion is, is that I think that Jeff was looking for a guy 
in the band that would mesh with him and make that work with everybody else. And I think that's why my, you know, and again, this is speculation from me, but that's why I'm pretty confident that there really was no audition for guitar players. It was Jeff saying, Hey, I really want this guy, Michael jam with him. See if you guys work out pretty well. And, and they did, they, they came up with, um, the initial structure and riffs for the song right side of my mind pretty much on the spot when they were just jamming with one another for the first time. So when that happened, you know, I guess Michael and Kelly felt like they had a little bit of chemistry and Jeff was like, okay, well, Kelly's my guy anyway. So if you guys are feeling it, let's do it. And, and I guess that's kind of how, um, again, speculating, but I, I guess that's kind of how Kelly ended up getting the gig. He, he was buddies with Jeff and, successful little jam with Michael and, and, and it worked. Now, Chris was the one who brought a lot of the ideas to Jeff. Um, he was the leader of the band. And now you're in a situation now where you've, Chris is gone. You got new guitarist Kelly in. Who was the one that brought the ideas to Jeff now? Um, yeah, I mean, Chris was the, I, I think most Queensryche fans will say that Chris was the bridge between Jeff and the rest of the guys. Um, and so when Kelly came on board, Jeff and Kelly had been close friends for, for years. I mean, decades. So it was one of those things where I think like Kelly had a bunch of song ideas and, you know, the chemistry in the band at the time when Kelly joined from everything that I can tell was really high. They were all really kind of united in wanting to work together as a band and really be successful in this rebirth of Queensryche without Chris. I mean, everything that you read articles from the time period, 98 and early 1999 into the album's release, that's the consistent statement that seems to be coming through. Like, Hey, we're a band, we're writing together. And I think Q2K kind of shows that. Um, and we get into Q2K and talk about the songs. I think I'll be able to illustrate that a little bit better, but you know, I, I think Kelly, filled the DeGarmo role and he filled it not only musically because he could take some of the ideas from the other guys and help put together songs that Jeff related to. But again, he really fit well with Jeff as a person because they were close and especially with the vocals. Um, you know, Kelly, uh, we can get into this a little later, but when I interviewed Kelly about Q2K, he basically said that he believes that, you know, music is just noise until a singer puts his or her stamp all over it. And I think that's the approach that personally that Jeff was looking for. Mm. Now, the actual writing of that, um, did they jam a lot of the ideas together or did the guys bring in finished ideas to Jeff to work on? Or was it one or the other or a combination of all of it? I think it was a combination. I mean, from what I can remember, I, I, I definitely think it was a combination. Um, Kelly's, you know, Kelly had everything at the time. People forget, like Kelly, Kelly got a lot of crap with Q2K, but he was a really in-demand producer and songwriter. I mean, you know, the, the uh, you know, the Candlebox record, Brother Kane, you know, he did, I think he did some stuff with, uh, even though it wasn't highly regarded, he did some stuff with Nevermore, he did some stuff with Dokken. So he was a name in the production scene back then, a popular name. And, and I think that, that he came into the situation ready to go with some song ideas. 
And then there were a few songs, um, and as we go down the list of, of the songs, when we talk about the record, I can kind of pull those up. But there were definitely songs that Michael had riff ideas and Eddie had riff ideas that he took and helped flesh out like Chris would do. Mm. Um, that's a lot of power for a new guy to have on a band that's trying to reinvent themselves. You got Kelly is the new guitar player and he's producing the record. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember at the time any other names being bandied about to produce it other than Kelly? No, I don't. I mean, you got to remember the time period too. I mean, 1999 is, or 1998 is 21 years ago. Information wasn't as easily obtainable. Um, I don't remember anything, but then there wasn't, you know, and the internet was, 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 was what it was, but it wasn't like it is today where every little piece of news finds its way um, to everyone. It wasn't like that back then. And I don't really think that they even thought they would need anybody else. Once they got Kelly into the band, Kelly's like, well, Hey, you know, I'm a pretty high profile producer. And he was, so why would they need anybody else? They can make it all inclusive, you know? And, and again, you know, with 20 some odd years behind us, money, well, it's a hell of a lot cheaper when you don't have to hire a producer. So. Yeah, you have to wonder as well, because you said there that Kelly was in the band before they did the record. Mm-hmm. Um, did Kelly even know that he was going to produce the next record before he agreed to join the band? I think he, I think he did. Um, and I think it was something that Queensryche were either talking about prior to DeGarmo leaving. Just because, again, like I mentioned earlier, Kelly was doing wiring in Chris's home studio before he even knew that Chris had either made the decision to leave or was thinking to leave. And Kelly's even said, like, he, he thought he was, you know, was thinking about, he thought that he was going to produce the next Queensryche record. Um, assuming Chris was in the band, he thought that. So they may have had the idea to have Kelly produce the record, you know, well before he joined the band. Hmm. What do you think of Q2K? Are you a big fan? You know, at the time, I really liked it. Um, it, it has ebbed and flowed for me. I, I, I went through a long stretch of really defending that record, especially the first few years after it was released. And then it fell out of favor with me for a long time. Um, and just recently, I'd say the last couple of years, I revisited it. And, uh, you know, I like it. It, it, it doesn't sound like, for the most part, it doesn't sound like Queensryche to me. But it sounds like a band that is united. And I think that it would have been really interesting to see what would have happened had they kept it together for another album. Um, so, yeah, it's a long answer to your question. I, I like it, but I don't like it as a Queensryche record, but I like it as a hard rock record. I'm a big fan of this. Um, I know. I bought it in Dublin the day, day it came out. And uh, what I really liked about it was the, the sound of it. it. It wasn't as muddy as here in the Now Frontier. I think the, songs, the song structure is very similar. Um, it, it ju- it's just mixed better. It's got that old-style Queensryche pristine sound to it but it's not it's not 100% like Empire or, or Operation Mindcrime it's kind of a, a cross between here and the now frontier and Empire I think that's fair I mean I, I'm with you I wasn't a very big fan of, of Toby Wright's 
I believe Toby Wright was the one who mixed here in the now frontier. I'd have to double check that, but I think so. Hmm. Um, I know he engineered it. I'm pretty sure he mixed it. Um, I wasn't a big fan of that mix. I, I mean, I understood at the time, like I think Toby Wright worked with Allison chains and, and there was some success there. And so, I, and you know, the style in which here in the now frontier was being created, like we talked about earlier, I totally understand why the band would have chosen a guy like Toby Wright to do something instead of Jimbo Barton, who had done Promised Land and Empire. Totally get it. Um, with Q2K, I agree. I like the sound better than here in the Now Frontier. I, I think Kelly, um, I, 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 I'm not sure I agree with you about the muddiness, because I think Q2K is a little muddy, but I do like there's this more... Uh, the drum sound is a hell of a lot better. Oh yeah, um, definitely, absolutely. And I like the and the vocals. The vocals were mixed better. Um, I think the vocals were mixed really well. So yeah, I, I, it's got its high points and its low points, but I, I definitely prefer the mix um, of that record and the overall production to that of Here in the Now Frontier for sure. Mm. Hey everybody, it's Adrian Vandenberg. Uh, you might know me from my 13 years with Whitesnake. I've got my new band Vandenberg's Moon Kings, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. So I would say turn it up. So do you want to go through it track by track? Sure, let's do it. Um, you're going to know a lot more about this now than I am. <laughs> I'll, I'll, basically, I'm going to say, yeah, I like that song. Nah, not a huge fan of that one. Uh, let's let's start with Falling Down, the opening track. Falling Down. Well, you know, I love the riff. The intro riff was really cool. I've always loved that riff. Um, it was something that I felt like gave the... It, the pacing was mid-tempo, but I thought it had a lot of attitude to it. And and, and I really dug that song um, at the time, and I still do. What do you think? I'm a fan of it. Um, love the guitar solo in it. Yes. Um, solo's great. It, what I hate about Queensryche albums is they don't tell you who plays what solo. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I don't know if it's Wilton or Kelly Gray doing that one. I can help you with that one. Um, when I interviewed Kelly um, in 2001, I, I went through a lot of the songs to try and identify the writers. And uh, I asked him specifically about the solo because it was kind of, you know, Queensryche hadn't done that trade-off solo in quite some time. There was nothing on here in the Now Frontier that was a trade-off. There was some harmonized stuff, but there wasn't any trade-off. And same thing with Promised Land. There was no trade-off solos. It was Empire was the last time they had done that. I, let me think about that for a second. Did Empire even have that? No, I don't even think they had that on Empire. I huh. think Mindcrime was actually the last time they did a trade-off. So I asked Kelly about that solo and Falling Down, and he said that Michael came in um, with that solo, and Kelly kind of guided him through it. So I think like they played that off. My guess is that they played that off of one another. So it's both of them trading off bits of it, and then I think at the end part of it, I think they harmonize at the end. It's been a while since I listened to it, but I, I know the trade-off. It was both of them soloing. Okay. Sacred Ground. Was that, was that a single? It was. Okay. Yeah. Actually, no. No, no, no. I'm sorry about that. Uh, it was not a single. It should have been. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that, that song is... Um, that song is just... It's great musically, especially for the time. I thought it was a clear single. Um, the lyrically is where I think myself and a lot of Queensryche fans just kind of just wonder what the hell is going on. I mean, essentially, if you read the lyrics, it's an ode to um, a woman's nether regions. And I think it's ridiculous. You know, when I'm inside you, you bring me to sacred ground. I mean, come on. 
it, it, it's it's just not something that's very Queensryche, and I think it's an example of kind of Jeff having a little bit more control over the lyrics and vocals than he used to. You know, the joke was it was a, it was an ode to Susan Tate's cooter. That's what I, I remember a lot of people saying at the time. Um, <laughs> but you know what? Musically, it was a really good tune. I know Scott Rockenfield had a big hand in writing the music for that song along with Kelly. And uh, even Kelly thought that it should have been the single instead of Breakdown, which we'll talk about later. But he thought that should have been the single too. And and to the day to this day, I agree. I think that one should have been. Mm. Has a has a really good has a really good rhythm to it. Um, it. They played it in it. I think that was definitely in the live set for probably the whole tour. No, I yeah, it was. It was. I don't think it ever left the um, it ever left the set list. And and I know at the fan club show where they debuted Kelly live. Uh, Seattle 99, January 16th, 1999. Um, that was one of the few songs that they played from Q2K to give us a taste of what the new lineup sounded like. And uh, it was it went over well. Hmm. Right, One Life, next song. I'm a big fan of this one. How, why do you like it so much? I'm, I'm curious. Um, I, I'm, I'm kind of middle of the road on it. I love Scott's drumming on it. Mm-hmm. I just it's it's just the way the way he plays drums on this I just really like it. Yeah, it was a different song for Queensrÿche. I I thought there was a little bit of U2 in there, which is um Kelly Gray's he's a he's a big fan of U2 and and Jeff Jeff became one as well. I think Jeff always was actually. Um but Kelly and Jeff are big fans of U2. It always gave me that kind of a vibe. And uh no, I I dig the way Jeff sings it. I don't. I didn't feel like the song went anywhere. I don't know. I don't know what you think. I mean, I just felt like it kind of plotted along a little bit. Mm. It's just one of these songs that grabbed me when I listened to it first. I think maybe because it was different. Yeah. Yeah. When the rain comes, brilliant song. I I absolutely love Jeff's vocals on this. I do too. In fact, I remember when he tracked vocals for that. They would post on Queensrÿche.com uh, way back then. They would post updates from the studio. Like Jeff would send things to their webmaster to post up there. And I remember Jeff having tracked that song, the vocals for that song, and he, and he wrote into the website saying how much he loved that song and and how powerful it was to him. And to be honest with you, it's probably top three for me in the Kelly Gray era. It might even be my favorite song from the era. It's got a great solo in it from Wilton. Um, that's Wilton's song. Um, Kelly told me that Michael's the one who wrote the music to that. And so I think that was one of the good collaborations between Michael and Jeff. Uh, it just resonated with Jeff and he wrote some really good lyrics. It, it, it was a powerful song. In fact, that should have also been a single in my opinion. Mm. Um, next song, How Could I? Is that about Chris DeGarmo? The lyrics seem to, it comes across that, it, that it's about somebody leaving. It's about a relationship. And I mean, and that's what Jeff really focused on with his lyrics, especially on that record was relationships. I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, he's never really said who the song is about. I, I don't know. I think it's more, personally, I thought it was more about a, 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 a love relationship. Um, but it could have been about Chris. I'm not a huge fan of How Could I? In retrospect, it's grown on me a little bit over the last several years, but to me, it's it's still filler. Um, I know a lot of people like it. It just never really grabbed me. Mm. Well, it's just you look at the lyrics. How could I know? We never took it slow. We gave it all we had and more. That, to me, definitely, is, you know, it doesn't me- mention the Garmo, 
mm-hmm. but you can re- you can definitely read that into it. How could I have known? Yeah, I mean, you definitely could, and and I mean, obviously, Degarmo leaving was a subject that obviously was going through everybody's mind, um, especially Jeff being a lyric writer and, and focusing on relationships and different things of that nature. I, I mean, I'm sure that it probably creeped into his headspace. Whether or not it's specifically about Chris, I don't know, but it, it's just, um, it's definitely, it's definitely Queensrÿche taking a bent towards less social commentary, which they were known for. And really focusing on human relationships um, and and how they make you feel. And, and Jeff spearheaded that. And so some of them really work and some of them don't. How could I? Solid song. Not one of my favorites, but it could have been about the Garmo. I don't know. Hmm. Besides you, um, it's okay. It's probably the, my weakest track on the record. I, this was a single. It was. I think it might have even been the last single or second to last single. I, I, I forget. Um, but it was a single. Um, I have the promo CD for it. Not one of my favorite songs either. I thought it was a little sappy. Um, Kelly wrote this one musically. Uh, Jeff did the lyrics. I'm trying to remember. Is this the one that has an opening monologue on it? Um, I think so. The one that goes holy, holy. Yes, that's beside you. Yeah. Okay. Interesting story about that one was Kelly. Um, Kelly told me about that. He came in with that intro. And, um, you know, that whole, you know, intro monologue thing. And when Jeff heard it, he loved it. And so Kelly, when they were recording the song, Kelly's like, well, you're going to redo that. Right. And Jeff goes, no, let's keep it. So that whole intro is Kelly, Kelly Grace singing that intro. Oh, didn't know that. Um, liquid sky. I'm a big fan of this one. Me too. Me too. Really interesting song for them. Um, I thought it was kind of dynamic. The guitar harmonics were really cool pretty powerful live too did, did you get a chance to see it live i did not see Queensryche from 1991 until 2004 when they opened with judas priest they never played in ireland oh that's right you told me that before yeah, yeah. so so the answer is no <laughs> uh, yeah, it, this was a staple in their live set it was actually if i remember right they they debuted three songs on kisw in seattle on january 13th 1999 uh they debuted liquid sky uh breakdown and i think sacred ground and this was liquid sky i think was the first song that anybody ever heard of the q2k era lineup of queensryche and to date, I still think it's most fans' favorite or one of their top songs um, that they ever did with Kelly. And uh, I love it. I still love it. I think the current band could still pull it off pretty well if they wanted to. Uh, I've, I've been hoping that Jeff would play it in the solo sets, but he, he really hasn't. Great song. Um, one of the highlights of Q2K for sure. And really highlights not only the guitar harmonics, but Scott did a hell of a draw, job on the drums on that one, too. Mm. Breakdown. I think that was a single. It was. It was their first single. Yeah. Um, for heavy song for them. You know, I remember it was also the first song, the fan club show, which was Kelly Gray's live debut, was January 16th, 1999. I, I mentioned it before. I was there. Uh, it was at NAF uh, Rehearsal Studios um, right outside of Seattle. And uh, that was the first live song that they played from Q2K. And it got a huge response from that crowd. I mean, obviously, it was the fan club. So it was everybody who was really rooting for them to succeed. And But that one, it really played well live. 
And the interesting thing about that one is the demo for that is quite a bit different than the one, at least vocally, than the one that, than the final version. On that song, Jeff would, would scream the chorus. He would yell out breakdown like a lot higher uh, and a lot more aggressively. And so if you ever get a hold of those recordings, I have them somewhere. I could probably send them to you, but I think they might be on YouTube. But you, you'll notice that the arrangement is somewhat similar, but vocally the song is different. And um, it's still, either way, I thought it was a really heavy song for them. And I think a lot of people are like, finally, Queens are getting heavy again because it was so aggressive. Um, and I think it was a good one for them. I, I, I don't think it was as successful as they wanted it to be. But uh, it was nice to hear Queensryche get angry again. Mm. Now, the next track, Burning Man, it's interesting you bring up U2 uh, mm-hmm. uh, sounding on, you'd sound like U2 on One Life. I, I can listen to Burning Man, and it's like a faster version of Bullet the Blue Sky. Well, I, you know, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I guess I can hear that too. Um, they, they they played Bullet the Blue Sky throughout the U.S. tour. Um, one of the, I think it was one of their encore songs. But uh, Burning Man, Scott wrote that. It was Scott. I think it was Scott, Kelly, Eddie, and Jeff. I don't think Michael wrote anything for that one. I could be wrong, but but I but I think so. I know Scott was heavily involved with Kelly on that one. I always considered Burning Man the most interesting musical thing that the Q2K era of the band did. But it was it, just a lost opportunity. I, I, I think that the lyrics and the subject matter really didn't do the song justice. I think they could have went other places. That could have been a longer song. It could have been a really dynamic song. Um, Fun Live, it was a, a good crowd song. Everybody would sing Burning Man. Uh, it was, I think they ended the, ended most of the U.S. shows with it. Um, so it got the crowd going. I always wished it would be a little longer, though. Again, it was another aggressive song, too. It was faster paced. It's... Um it's one of these songs on the record that it doesn't really have a riff to it. It's got a lot of noises in it. It does. It, and it was different, but it was, but it being aggressive and it having all those little guitar harmonics, like it's not, you're right. It's not a, a, a set like heavy riff, but the song still comes off as heavy even without it, which uh, to me was really interesting because they, they hadn't, done something like that before you know it was always kind of riff based Mm. the next track I'm not really a fan of what kind of man it's kind of a filler kind of a filler and you mentioned before like you thought some song uh, like I think you said that you thought uh, how could I was about Chris I always thought what kind of man was about Chris or at least some sort of if if not about Chris it was about a father figure that's or, or, or somebody that let him let Jeff down that's what I always got from What Kind of Man. I thought the spelling on the CD, uh, on the liner notes, was kind of ridiculous. Jeff got into that habit of not spelling out proper spellings of words. I don't know why the hell he did that. I, I don't hate it musically. I, I think it's filler. I, I think it's okay. They didn't play it much. I know they played it in San Jose on the Q2K tour. Um, I don't think I saw it personally, but they only played it a couple times and then never again. It, it really wasn't popular. But if one song on that record was about Chris, that would be my guess. I don't know. What do you think? When it comes to lyrics, I, I thought um, How Could I was about Chris. It's all up open to interpretation. You could be right. What kind of man are you? Yeah. 
you know, it's again, it's all interpretation. Like there has to be something on here. That's about yeah, him because he'd been in the band from the beginning, integral part of the band, and he left. So that's bound to have an effect on Jeff when he's writing lyrics. Yeah, and I think bits and pieces of a lot of the songs are all about Chris. I mean, how could they not be? You know, and, and I mean, even like songs like When the Rain Comes, you know, uh, it could be reflecting on some things and, and the experiences that happen with Chris, you know. I mean, if I remember right, When the Rain Comes is a song that starts off really melancholy. But at the end, it's kind of like a, it, it, it becomes a little bit more uplifting, like a new start. You know, that could have been partially about Chris. So I don't know. Uh, but I think you're right, though. I think a lot of these songs really do, um, you know, touch upon maybe Chris's leaving or at least the feelings behind it. Uh, again, how could they not? Now, the last track, The Right Side of My Mind, I think is a brilliant song. Finishes the record off really, really well. I like Right Side of My Mind. I, I, I do think, and this is going to be sacrilegious to some Queensryche fans, but I, I think that it's a bit overrated. I, it, it's definitely the first song that they wrote, started writing together. Uh, that was the song that Michael and Kelly, I think I mentioned earlier, Michael and Kelly jammed on that and came up with it. Um, very Queensryche in terms of pace, that epic feel. Yeah. Um, Jeff, Jeff's lyrics are a little more vague, so not necessarily about a relationship and so i like it uh, it has a lot of appeal from a classic queensrike standpoint and, and so i get why a lot of people like it i thought it was a bit pace wise i thought it was like a brother to spool from here in the now frontier but not quite as good as that one if that makes sense yeah the last track on here in the now frontier yeah yeah, but good song, though, and I, and I thought Jeff hit a nice little note, I think, to finish it off. It was a pretty long note. It wasn't very high, but holding a note for 20-some-odd seconds or whatever he held that thing, it always got a good rise from the crowd mm. live. It was a staple for them, that entire swing. Mm. So. In 2006, they reissued this with two new studio bonus tracks, um, Until There Was You. It's a good song, but I think it, it wasn't on the record because it already had two or three ballads on it anyway. I think you're right. Um, and Until There Was You was actually supposed to be... It was That song title was announced at some point during um, the Q2K, uh, either before Q2K was released. I think that one was mentioned. It was supposed to be a soundtrack song. Like, I think they were they, they submitted that song for inclusion on a movie soundtrack. And I don't remember which one it was. Um, you know, a trip through the Wayback Machine on queensrike.com may, may, may reveal that, but I, I don't remember which one it was. But yeah, a sappy ballad. I was never really a big fan of it. It was written by Kelly musically and Jeff Lyrics. Not bad. Not a, not, I'm not a big fan of it, though, too. Um, the one that I really loved on that re-release of Q2K was Howl. That song was actually one of the initial demos they did for the, for the record. It was originally called I Howl. And uh, to me, that is, I mean, personally, that is one of the undiscovered gems of Q2K sessions. Um, How that didn't make the record, I have no idea, but it was definitely impactful, at least for me. Um, And it remains probably one of my top three on the record, I mean, Mm. at least in the sessions. Mm. I like it. I don't love it as much as you do. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know why. It's, It's good, but when I put, the two bonus tracks up against the rest of the record. Okay, you could put Howl in instead of What Kind of Man or How Could I. 
I'll give you I'll give you that. But the song doesn't exactly blow me away. I, like I don't think it's as good as Breakdown. I don't think it's as good as Sacred Ground. You know the up tempo tracks Liquid Sky. I don't think it's as good as any of those. So I I can understand why it was left off. Yeah, I would be interested in knowing who wrote that one. I don't know who wrote that one. I'm assuming Kelly did. Uh, and it also, because of the bass line in the song, I'm going to guess and say that Eddie had a pretty big hand in that one too, but that's a guess. Mm. Um, you know, but those are, um, I, I, again, out of the two B-sides, I like that one the best. And the other thing I need to ask is how much yeah. input Eddie Jackson had into writing the music because you haven't really mentioned him at all. It's all been Kelly and Michael and Scott. Yeah, I could go through and... and, and and if recall most of it, but Eddie was very involved in Choo Choo K. He was, I would say, on he was a, a co-writer on probably half the tracks. Um, you know, I know he was he was involved. I know he was involved with um, Sacred Ground. He was involved on that one. Uh, we can go over the if you want to do a second call next week or whatever. Yeah. Why don't why don't why don't we do that? This way, I can spend a little time and go through that. Mm-hmm. We can talk about the unreleased kind of songs. All right, there you go, Richie's talk with Brian. And again, big thanks to uh, Brian, kind of uh, another co-host on the show, it seems like, at this point. And uh, always great to have him on. Good stuff, and uh, definitely makes the editing really easy on my <laughs> side as well. And then, you know, at the end of it, you, they're kind of talking about, you know, maybe getting back and talking to each other again and tying out a few things on some unreleased stuff and whatever else. But uh, my buddy across the desk here, he's... Uh, He's kind of toast. He's more than ready for uh, for winter break, we, so he was never, just gonna. We never gonna let got. It go. We never got to that. <laughs> we wanted to talk about some unreleased songs. Yeah. Um, extra stuff that they recorded, but we had an hour. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I just think I said we have yeah. an hour. We're done. Yeah. I mean, maybe you guys will get back to it. It'll kind of be like a uh, we'll follow up or whatever, which. I kind of fully expect, but yeah, for this one, if you're waiting for next week to hear like more of Q2K, um, nope, that's that's definitely not happening. Next week, we got some good stuff lined up for you. Once again, courtesy of Richie, and that is a really nice backstage chat with uh, with Kip Winger. If you want to uh, see Richie's review of that show, you can of course go up to focusonmetal.blogspot.com, and also next week. Uh, He's talking with Miles Kennedy about the brand new Alter Bridge. But uh, any last thoughts for this week? Nope. Nothing? We're uh, we're doing Dedicated to Chaos next. (laughs) An in-depth six-part shot. Oh, great. (laughs) (laughs) Going to get the caterer on. All right. Anyways, then uh, for this week, for myself, me. That is it. That's a wrap. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So until we talk to you again next week. Remember, focus on metal. Everything else is insignificant. You're still here? It's over. Go home.